Please turn to 1 Samuel 31. We've come to the end. 1 Samuel. It's always bittersweet for me in particular. I don't know if it is for you. Maybe it's just sweet. Uh, uh, spending so much time in this book, wanting to teach you, wanting to teach your own, to teach my own heart and then your hearts. Uh, just a lot of prayer, a lot of time, and um, there's always an anticipation for the next book, but kind of a sorrow that we'll be finishing this one. So First uh, Samuel 31, please follow along as I read. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua and the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall at Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall at Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. I've entitled this message, A Tragic End. Uh, some of you have, been, have had movies or books recommended to you, and you're maybe going through the book or the movie, and you realize, I really like this. This is a good book. This is a good movie. And it comes to the end, and the end doesn't end in a happy way. It ends in a tragedy. And then you say, I hate that movie. I hate that book. Some of you want a happy ending so bad to a story that if it doesn't end well, you don't like the whole book before it or the movie before it. That's understandable. We're a people who want brightness. We're a people who want light. We're a people who want to hope in something. And when society all around us kind of, the, the darkness kind of closes in and there's less hope, it's difficult for us. And so uh, we understand wanting to read a story that has hope in the end or bright light at the end. And I would argue that this whole book of Samuel, first and second together, does bring about a hope. And it's a hope that points forward. It's a hope that points forward to a perfect leader, Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that a little bit at the end. But here we have 
really the villain in 1 Samuel, if you will, the failed leader, the bad leader, falling. All that he's done comes back to haunt him, if you will, in these last hours. This has been prophesied by the prophets, by Samuel. It's been prophesied by them through the Word of God because of the Word of God. It's, it's something that God has said would happen. There are consequences to bad leadership. There are consequences to going through the motions of worship, but really shutting, sh- shutting your, your ears off to God's voice. There are consequences to all that, and this passage shows us that. This passage shows us the tragic ending. Saul and his sons, among whom are Jonathan, Saul and his sons die, and not only do they die, but Israel suffers a huge defeat. Leadership has consequences. David, as we've gone through these last few chapters, we've seen David being rescued by God. So we see David, who doesn't always trust in God like he should, but he trusts far more than Saul does, David being rescued by God toward the end, and then here Saul being judged by God at the end. David, a man after God's own heart who wanted the true and right worship given to Yahweh. Saul, a man who rejected God's word and went through the motions of worship and just was out to care for himself. There's the contrast, and here we end 1 Samuel 31 with a tragic end. And so this passage, these two paragraphs are divided up by days, one day and then another day. So that'll be our outline, two days of destruction. Let's look at two days of destruction. And at the end of this, I'm going I'm to walk through some lessons for us, not just from this passage, but from the whole of 1 Samuel. So two days of destruction, two days of tragedy, two days, and then we'll walk through some lessons for us to grab. First, day one, verses one through seven. Day one, you find the decimation of a nation. You see a nation that is not just on the ropes, but a nation that is largely overtaken by the Philistines. Verse one, now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. At the very beginning of this chapter, there's kind of a summary verse that's right there. This is what's going to happen, and it's going to play out. You're going to see how it plays out in the coming verses to follow in chapter 31. But here's kind of this overarching summary statement. Philistines were fighting against Israel. The men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. It's kind of giving you the, the, um, the bad news up front. And this is nothing surprising to us, those of us who've been going to, through 1 Samuel. We've seen this in prophecies before, right? Prophecies like chapter 15, verse 28. I'll read that for you. Chapter 15, verse 28. This prophecy was given. Samuel said to him, to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from We see throughout this book that Saul doesn't listen to the voice of God. Saul takes matters into his own hand. He, he goes to the Lord for wrong reasons, but he doesn't listen to what God tells him. And the judgment here in chapter 15 is that the kingdom is going to be torn from you and it's going to be given to someone else who's better than you. Now, we know who that person is, David. But then listen to chapter 28. This is the last time we talked about Saul, chapter 28. Chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Uh, 18 and 19. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, Samuel again talking to Saul, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing, done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. 
And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me dead in the grave. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. So there are these prophecies leading up to it. Saul, in his failure, was told by God through the prophet Samuel that not only would he die, but his sons would die, and Israel would be taken over by the Philistines. Verse 2, And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Now, before we go any further, just notice the last thing we hear about Jonathan before he dies. We, we learn right here of Jonathan's death. This is one of the sad things about bad leadership, and here you could say bad fathering, if you will, from Saul. The thing that should overshadow, the thing that should be known is Jonathan's character. We've been seeing Jonathan's character scattered throughout the book of 1 Samuel. Jonathan, the rightful king in the eyes of everybody, coming after Saul. Maybe when Saul dies, Jonathan would be king. That's normally the way it goes. But Jonathan knows the Lord has committed himself to David. So Jonathan doesn't fight David, doesn't fight the Lord, doesn't fight anybody else. But Jonathan takes off his armor, gives it to David in a sign of showing that you are the rightful king, I am your servant. You see humility from Jonathan. You see bravery from Jonathan. Jonathan going after the enemies of Israel when nobody else was. And you see blessing on Jonathan as God blesses uh, Jonathan for that action and gives, gives the Philistines at that time into the hands of the Israelites. You see so much good in Jonathan. You see him as the model friend to David. You see him as one who, when David was in need, came to David in the wilderness and strengthened his hand in the Lord, pointed him to the promises of God. Jonathan is quite an exemplary figure in biblical history. Jonathan should be the theme of this chapter, but he's overshadowed by his father, the poor, failed leader of Israel, and that's often what happens. When there's something that bad, something that horrendous, something, someone that incapable, someone that self-serving, someone that, that into rejecting God, it overshadows even all of the good sometimes. It's a tragedy. It is a tragedy that Jonathan's only mentioned here as being the first one named in the three sons that die. But that's the way the text gives it. The battle pressed hard, verse 3, against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. So evidently the archers are close enough to hit Saul, but they're far enough away that Saul can have this conversation with his armor-bearer before the archers come and finish off the task. And so Saul says, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. I'd rather have someone from Israel kill me than one of these Philistines, one of these uncircumcised to come and thrust me through and mistreat me. That, that word mistreat is important because this is what people who conquered others would often do. They, they would come and mistreat them. It, it was part of warfare in that day and age. I mean, you saw David strike Goliath with the stone from the sling, knocks Goliath down, but then he goes, and evidently while Goliath is still alive, it wasn't the rock that killed him. It was David cutting off his head that killed him. But he's, he's struck... And then David comes and mistreats him, cuts off his head. They would, they would mutilate people in times like that. They would mutilate their genitals, if you will. This was part of what would happen then. 
And so Saul's saying, you kill me before they can do anything to me while I'm still alive. That's what he's asking for. Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Why wouldn't his armor bearer do this? Why wouldn't his armor bearer think, yeah, of course we don't want to have you die by the hands of the Philistines or be mistreated by the hands of the Philistines, so I'll take care of it for you. Why would his armor bearer not do that? Because there's a theme going through 1 Samuel that the faithful ones won't touch the Lord's anointed. They won't hurt Saul. They won't kill Saul. They won't threaten Saul. They won't do that. And so you have this man that's fearful. Who's he afraid of? Uh, Maybe being tried for murder later on. Maybe being uh, judged by God for touching the Lord's anointed or destroying the Lord's anointed. But whatever, for whatever reason, he fears greatly and he won't do it. Therefore, Saul took his own sword, verse 6, end of verse 6, and fell upon it. Saul would rather kill himself than, than die at the hand of the Philistines. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. And then this statement, thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. That language there is meant to, for you to see the, the, the level of defeat that it was. This was a huge defeat. The king died, his three sons died, his armor bearer died, and his men died. Verse 7, when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. So, it says that they saw the Israelites fleeing, so they're looking across the valley and they see the Israelite army flee. They evidently get word or can see somehow that Saul and his children have fallen too. So they, in their cities, before the Philistines are even there, they leave, thrown in the towel. We're, we're not going to overtake them. If they did that to them, they're just going to be on our heels shortly. We're out of here. So the Philistines, just kind of like this wave, overtake this whole region, and the Israelites are on the run, destroyed. This is the decimation of a nation. And what's the reason for it? Well, you who've been listening to 1 Samuel, going through 1 Samuel, you know there's a reason for it. The reason is Saul. The failed leadership of Saul brings the nation to this place. <clears throat> and I want you to see how, how, how the text wants you to know of this overwhelming defeat. The, the language of this text reveals the destruction. It's, it's not always that language gives us the, the, perfect, um, the, the perfect account of what happened. Uh, my Uncle Brian likes to tell a story of how uh, when I was little playing youth soccer at like five or six years old, uh, I came home one day and Uncle Brian said to me, hey, how was your soccer game? And I said, we creamed them three to two. And he just thinks that's the funniest thing in the world. I mean, you don't really cream a team or destroy a team three to two. I mean, that's pretty close. So language doesn't always kind of show us the level of the victory. But here in 1 Samuel 31, 1 to 7, the language is trying to show us how bad this was for Saul, his sons, and the people of Israel. Let me just read to you the, the terms that are used just in 1 Samuel 31. The term flee is used three times. The term fall is used four times. Strike down, wound, 
pierce is used twice, cut off, nail, strip, strip bare two times, die four times. And this isn't a long chapter. There have been a lot longer chapters in 1 Samuel. But this, this chapter is written to show you the, the tragedy of the end of Saul's life. It didn't just affect him and his family, it affected the whole nation as well. So, day one, there's a decimation of Israel. Saul and his sons die, and Israel loses their territory. Let's go to day two now. The tragedy continues. Day two, desecration of bodies. The desecration of bodies. So, we see a decimation of the nation, and here we see the desecration of bodies. Verse eight, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So what happens is that there's a destroying of the Israelite army. They go and destroy, they, they, they take over the cities, and then the next day they kind of go through and take all of the goods, all the things they can find from the soldiers or from the city. So this is the next day when they're collecting everything for themselves. So these Philistines come to Mount Gilboa. They find Saul and his three sons dead, fallen, Verse 9, so they cut off his head, common thing to do. Israelites did that. Uh, the nations around them did that. Here the Philistines do that. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor. Again, the armor of a king showing that he's no longer king. He's been defeated. They strip off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. Now remember, I've told you this before, when, when an army defeated another army, it wasn't just we had more weapons than you did. That's kind of how it is today. Our military was stronger than yours. But back in that day, it was our God is stronger than yours. We saw that early on in 1 Samuel, remember, when the Philistines gained a victory and, and they brought the ark of God into their temple of Dagon, this fish god, and thinking the ark of God is bowing to Dagon, the fish god. Well, what happened? The fish god kept falling over as if God was saying no, Dagon is not stronger than me, the true and living God. So there was that message sent. But here, they again believe that they are the victors. So they bring the armor and the bodies to their temple. That's the logical place to bring it, their place of worship. Their gods had defeated the God of the Israelites. Verse 10, they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, this fertility goddess, and they fastened his body to the wall at Beth Shan. The wall at Bethshan is this high place where the body can be seen from far away. So there's this body of Saul, and we understand the body of his children probably as well, the body of Saul without its head being shown to the Philistines. Remember how the Philistines treated Samson in Judges? This was a normal way to do it. They gouged out his eyes. They, they mutilate them. They... they, they hurt them. They destroy them. They, they try to make a mockery of them. This is what happens in that day and age. Verse 11, but when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall at Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So there's this great defeat, but all of a sudden at the very end of this book, you hear about some valiant men doing something that is valiant. And you might think, what's the big deal? Saul's already dead. His son's already dead. Why risk your life to go 
and try to get a dead body to bury it? That's a 21st century question. It's not a question that most of human history has ever had a problem with. The body has dignity. And to honor a body is something that's done all throughout the Scriptures and really all throughout Christian history until just recently. There's something about getting a body and burying it in its proper place that's important to the people of God. And I say people of God, I'm meaning Israel here in the Old Covenant, in the New Covenant, the church. We'll get into more of that in a little bit. But these men are considered valiant because they go and seek to rescue the body of Saul and his sons. Now, why would they do that? Why would the men of Jabesh-Gilead, as Israel's been destroyed and the Philistines are victorious, why would these men risk their lives to go and get the body? Well, I'll remind you that Saul wasn't only evil all the time. He had a couple bright spots. One of his bright spots was in chapter 11 when he rescued the people of Jabesh-Gilead from Nahash the Ammonite. So Saul had rescued this group of men before. Saul was king for 40 years, and early in his reign, he rescued the men of Jabesh-Gilead, the people of Jabesh-Gilead. And so here, as he's dead, the men of Jabesh-Gilead go to seek to give his body a proper burial. Now, you'll notice that they go and they go to the wall of Beth Shon, they come to, and they bring the body back to Jabesh, and they burn the bodies there. This wasn't the normal custom, but evidently, the bodies were so disfigured that they chose to burn the bodies. Again, I'll say more about this in a little bit, but notice they don't just burn the whole body and kind of leave it. They actually work to get the bones and bury them. So while they are burning, they're also trying to give a proper burial as well. So they bring the bodies back. They burn the bodies. Evidently, they're so disfigured, and they bury the bones. They took their bones, verse 13, and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Now, where else have you heard tamarisk tree? Earlier in 1 Samuel, right? Saul would sit under the tamarisk tree and judge hold a spear in his hand, and he would decide disputes between different people in Israel. So this, again, was kind of a nod to his leadership. He was a bad leader. If you want to know, was Saul a good leader or a bad leader? Bad leader, but that didn't mean he didn't have some bright spots. In the common grace of God, he rescued the people of Jabesh-Gilead, and evidently he gave some good decisions at times. So they bury him under a place that he would be familiar with under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh, and they fasted, which would be fasting and mourning. They fasted for seven days. This is an appropriate way to end for Samuel with mourning and fasting. It's a difficult ending. It's the ending that's longing for something else to come. And second Samuel does come, and David rules and reigns, and the nation largely thrives under David, but then at the end of second Samuel, there's going to have to be another ruler to come. That's why the Old Testament's always pointing us forward to Jesus Christ, the perfect leader, the one who died for his people, even though he committed no wrong, and leads them to eternal victory to where there's not another leader needed. That's why the book of Hebrews says that God in many ways, at times before, has spoken through the prophets and many other ways, but now he's spoken to us in his son. It's like this is the end. So the Old Testament is pointing us forward to the need 
for Jesus Christ. But here on the second day, you see the desecration of these bodies, Saul's body and his son's bodies. Now, as we're at the end of 1 Samuel, I want to kind of wrap this up with three lessons for us, okay? Probably many lessons that we've had as we've gone through 1 Samuel, but I just want to highlight three. First lesson is this. Remember that leadership has consequences. And I mean those as good consequences and bad consequences. Leadership has consequences. We've seen this all throughout 1 Samuel. Bad leaders and the people under them suffer. Good leaders, the people under them are protected. Remember, David, at one point earlier in the book, is, is gathering people to himself, and he says to them, come with me and I will give you protection. That's, that's something shown in 1 Samuel that, that's a common theme. Good leaders benefit their people. Bad leaders end up putting their people in jeopardy. This is a spiritual, or this is a biblical reality. It's part of Christian theology. We see this all over the place. So when it comes to this and we come to the end of 1 Samuel and we see bad leadership negatively affecting people and good leadership positively affecting people, one good thing to ask is, are the people influenced by me benefiting or are they not? Now that doesn't always mean that someone who isn't benefiting, it's all because of your leadership. You, know, you were faithful to teach your kids the faith, you were faithful to bring them to church, faithful to show them Christ, you, you tried to model humility and a dependence on Him, but they've just gone astray. This doesn't mean that you're to blame all the time, okay? But this is saying it is good sometimes to look at the people influenced by you and say, are they thriving? And is there some way that I have led them to not thrive? And is there some way that I can help them so that they would thrive? It's a good question to ask. Bible study leader, father, mother, husband, church leader, friend, employer, are the people around you thriving? How is your influence with them? First Samuel teaches us that people thrive under good leadership. I showed you a couple weeks ago, I brought you to the end of Second Samuel, and I showed you how good authority and good leadership dawns on people like the morning light. Those of you Prescott are thinking, it's always morning light. Those of you from the Pacific Northwest know, oh, what a good gift morning light is. And the Bible uses that to show that good leadership dawns on people like the morning light. So remember, leadership has consequences. And all of you, you might not have a formal position as leader, but all of you are made to be, and I know it's a 21st century term, don't use it like the Gen Z kids are, you're meant to be influencers. You're meant to influence others. Christians are given the great commission to influence the rest of the world. We're meant to be different and beneficial to the world. So leadership has consequences. Just do an evaluation of your own leadership. Secondly, second lesson. Remember, these are all remembers because I don't want you to forget. That's why. Remember, bodies have dignity. Bodies have dignity. And this comes up in this passage. This honestly wasn't the, in, the intent by me to preach through this book and then end and go on a sabbatical where I would study Christian funeral and burial traditions. It just so happens to be the case. I am literally going to get on a plane with my family on Tuesday and go to England and study Christian funeral and burial practices. One of the reasons being, I don't think 
Christians today understand our history. I think largely we're uninformed as to what Christians have done for 2,000 years and what the people of God, namely Israel, did before that. I am not saying that cremation is a sin. I am not saying that you should feel guilty if you've cremated a loved one. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is cremation is foreign to what the Scriptures teach and foreign to what church history has done. So I just want to bring some awareness to the people of God so when you're making decisions about that, you can think through what have Christians done? What, is the scriptures, what have the Scriptures taught? What have the people of God done? How do they view the body? And one of the things that I think that we don't get today is that the body has dignity. Whether it's alive, treat your body well, treat others' bodies well. Or if it's dead, it still has a dignity. So a dead body, the spirit is no longer in it, right? But the dead body was still something created by God and therefore has a certain dignity to it. So let me talk a little bit about that. Um, again, you might see in this passage that the people of Jabesh Gilead brought, brought Saul's body back and, and burned the bodies and then buried the bones. And you might say, well, see, there's cremation. They were okay with it. But again, as I said before, that wasn't the normal Jewish practice. It was probably because of how disfigured the bodies were. But notice they made an effort to get the bones and have them buried. Cremation today doesn't do that. It just burns everything. So they made an effort to have a burial still. There's an Old Testament scholar named Hertzberg. Listen to what he says about this. Burning the bodies was not normal Hebrew practice, but it may have been judged necessary. He's talking about this passage here. The bodies will have been considerably damaged by the process of decomposition, which sets in quickly during the heat of the day, and by the ravages of the carrion birds. And it was important to remedy the disfigurement of the bodies and to rescue the bones for burial. And even, even David, later on in 2 Samuel, he's going to refer back to this. And he's going he's to commend the men of Jabesh Gilead, not for burning the bodies, but for burying them. Listen to what he says in 2 Samuel 2. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. So in David's mind, they gave Saul a burial. Now again, there have been people that have taught throughout church history that little pockets of people for different reasons, they're largely connected to heretics, that physical things are bad. That's not what the Bible teaches. Physical things are good. God created them. It's the curse that's bad, but physical things in and of themselves are not bad. Bodies are not bad. It's not as if the body's bad, the spirit's good. No, bodies are good. Bodies have dignity. We seek to care for bodies. We take care of what God has created when at all possible. Think of a soldier that dies overseas. It's not as if a soldier dies overseas and we think, okay, well, you know, their spirit's you know, with God, if they were a Christian, well, that, that's the end of it. No, no, we actually work to go and get their bodies, don't we, and bring them home. And we put them in a casket, and we put a flag over them. Why? It's a way to honor what they've done, but also to do our, the last thing that we can do, care for this precious body. We know that it's not alive. We know that the, the soul is somewhere else, but we care for that body that God created that meant so much 
to family and friends. We work at that. And I would argue that we should work at that because God created that body. And that body was part of someone that we've loved and will continue to love. That body's important. In John 12, Jesus commends Mary for anointing his body for burial. That's significant. He commends Mary for anointing his body for burial. In 2 Samuel 21, I told you that in this passage here, we saw that the, the bones of Saul and his sons were, were buried in Jabesh Gilead, which would seem like a good place for them to be buried. After all, he had a great victory in rescuing that, that place from the Philistines. But even according to David, that's not where Saul and his son should be buried. In 2 Samuel 21, David goes and digs up the bones, has them dug up, the bones of Saul and his sons, and he brings them back to Benjamin and buries them there. So there's even an effort, you see this in the Old Testament, to bury with their family, to bury with their place where they were with their family. You see this, uh, some of you have plots with your loved ones. You've, you've got two plots for um, husband and wife. That comes from somewhere. The people of God have always sought to be buried with their loved ones. This is something that's happened throughout Christian history. Again, this is not meant to make you feel bad if you did something else. You might not have known all this. You might not have been aware of this, how important the body is, or what Christians have done for many years. So this isn't me trying to make you feel bad, okay? It doesn't say that cremation is a sin in the Bible, but I do want you to understand what Christians have done in order to try to care for a loved one, try to care for their brothers and sisters in Christ. I can say more about this, and I think I will one day. Uh, again, I'm heading off to study this topic because, it has been, here's my number one reason, I want to be a help to you. Um, I've had a number of family members uh, in this church who have a loved one died. They, they just kind of don't, what do I do? Do I have a funeral? Do I not? Do I call the celebration of life? Do I not? Do I bury? Do I cremate? There's all these questions, and I just want to kind of dig up some church history to kind of lay it before you and help you make an informed decision. The Bible speaks to the importance of funerals, burials, and so I want to just highlight some of that to you, okay? Uh, but bodies have dignity. That's what I want you to see. Third and finally, third lesson for us as we close this book, remember God the Father's response to Jesus' death. Here's why. We've seen this tragic downfall of Saul we see the Philistines' response to Saul's death as it says their God has defeated the true and living God. That's, a, that's horrible. Saul's death is a low point. And then you see this little glimmer of these valiant men go and rescue his body and bring it back to be buried. So there's, there's this view that we have of Saul's death that teaches us something. But again, as I've told you, this book is always pointing us forward. David's going to die one day. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, hey, you all know David, how special David was. He's in the grave. But there's one that died and is alive. So we have to talk about him. If we're going to end a book and talk about a king who died, we have to talk about what this whole book is about. Jesus Christ, the one who came and lived, suffered, died, and rose again. We have to consider him.
And I want you to consider him through the Father, God the Father's perspective. If I asked you, what is God's perspective of Saul? You could answer, look at his death. That'll show you God's perspective of Saul. Saul cried out to God in those last days to to rescue him from his problems, but he had long rejected hearing from God, truly hearing from God. And so God judges him and allows him to die this way. You can see God's perspective on Saul. What is God's perspective? What is God the Father's perspective on His Son, Jesus Christ, who came little over a millennium after Saul? What's His perspective on Jesus Christ? Well, let's consider Saul and Christ for a moment. What are their similarities? In their death, they were both mocked. Saul mocked by the Philistines. Jesus mocked by those passing by the road crucifixion of Christ was a very public event, meant to be public for the purpose of mocking. We went through this in the Gospel of Mark. There is a whole section in the Gospel of Mark that just talks about the mocking of Jesus as he's dying. Saul mocked, Jesus mocked. God is even mocked in the death of Saul. God is even mocked when Jesus is dying. Hey, see if God will answer his prayers. See if angels will come and rescue him. It's not just a mocking of the Son, it's a mocking of the Father as well. Saul's body was mistreated. Jesus' body was mistreated. There's some similarities there. What are the differences? Jesus deserved the exact opposite of what he got. Saul deserved exactly what he got. Jesus did not deserve to die like he died. Saul spent his life looking out for himself Our Lord gave his whole life to serve others. I don't want you to think of Jesus dying for you on the cross as as his only sacrifice for you or someone else. He lived his whole life sacrificially, his whole life. Saul looked out for himself. Jesus came, looked out for others. Saul died a disgrace in the eyes of God. Jesus died approved in the eyes of God. Listen to Romans 1.3. It's about the Old Testament Scriptures pointing to Jesus. Concerning His Son, so concerning the Father's Son, Jesus, concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God. Now, you might say, when? When was He declared to be the Son of God? And you can make an argument that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God when He was first born. And you can use Scripture to back that up. That'd be great. You can say Jesus was declared to be the Son of God when He did His miracles, because even the demons saw His miracles, and they knew that He was the Son of God even before people on earth knew that. But in Romans 1.3, it says that He was declared to be the Son of God at the resurrection also. Listen, concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. So when Jesus rose from the dead, the whole world should say then and even now, oh my goodness, that is the Son of God. That's a logical conclusion. God the Father raised His Son up to a place of authority and rule over everything, over the people who destroyed Him physically. God the Father raised His Son up because of how He lived and what He did on the cross. God the Father responded to the death of Jesus by exalting Jesus. Saul is not exalted at the end of his life. 
1 Samuel 31 is a tragedy. Jesus dies and he is exalted. I want you to actually turn there if you will. Let's go to Isaiah 53. I've been wanting to read this to you for a few weeks as I see so many parallels here to David and Saul and death and resurrection. But let's do it now. Isaiah 53. And as we're reading this, yes, I want you to see how this is a prophecy of what Jesus would go through, but I want you to see the Father behind His servant, His Son's death. And you'll see this come out more clearly at the end. Look at how God highly exalted Him, raised Him, gave Him a place of prominence. Let's start in verse 4, Isaiah 53, verse 4. This is such a great passage. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Again, hear the Trinitarian language there. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shears is silenced, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people... And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Now, there's a turning point. I want you to see this. Isaiah 53, he, he was stricken, afflicted by God. And this is a prophecy of how the Jews will one day see this in Jesus. This hasn't happened yet. They'll one day look back and see what happened. We considered him stricken by God. Ah, God was punishing him because he was blasphemous. But no, they're coming to the realization, oh my goodness, he died for us. This was for us. Look what we did to him. And here in verse 8, it says that he was cut off out of the land of the living. When you were a sinner before God, when you were a blasphemer, you were cut off. Get out of here. Stricken for the transgression of my people. In verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked. Jesus died as if he were a wicked criminal. That's how much he identified with sinners. He was treated as a sinner. He was treated like the people that do horrible things to children today and get caught or thrown in prison. The way you feel about them is the way they felt about Jesus. Wicked, blasphemous. But then there's a turning point. In verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Now, now that, there's a problem there. Wicked people shouldn't have a burial with rich people with people who have been blessed by God in the, in the Jewish mind. Wicked people shouldn't have that. So it's right that he, was, he, he died with criminals, but there's something wrong about Jesus being buried with a rich man. One pastor, coincidentally from Cambridge, England, said, why was a condemned criminal buried in a rich man's tomb? Because he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
The Father honored the Son for his spotless life and sacrifice by ensuring that he was buried in the grave of a rich man. In other words, Jesus' burial brought to an end his humiliation and at the same time began his exaltation. You see this in Isaiah 53. Numbered with the transgressor, transgressors. He, he, was, he was smitten by God. He had his grave with the wicked. But then there's a turning point and he's buried with a rich man. And this pastor from Cambridge says, here's how you start to see the exaltation of Jesus. Suffered, died, mistreated, next to criminals, but then the fact that he got a rich man's tomb said that God viewed his burial as different than a wicked man. Gave him Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and then he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Notice how God the Father thinks of his son's death. God the Father honors his son's death, highly exalts his son for the fact that he died for sinners. See God the Father behind Jesus. And what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me tomorrow? I mean, I got to get up and wash dishes and go to work. What does that mean for me? Jesus is everything. God looks at his son and says, well done. And he highly exalts him so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. God, human history is meant to be infatuated with Jesus Christ for what he did. So when you do the laundry and go to work and make your lunch and whatever you're doing tomorrow, see it at, through the eyes of what Jesus has done. Jesus, you've given me so many blessings. You've given me a job. You've given me food. You've given me a family. I want them to know you. You've overcome the grave. I'm going to do laundry. I, I think I'm, it seems like I'm going to do endless laundry. You're not because you're going to die one day. Jesus, I won't do endless laundry because when I die, I'm going to rise and I'm going to be with you. Even the mundane tasks of this life can't be lived apart from Jesus because you know one day you're going to him because he rescued you. So there's a lot of application here. Jesus is amazing. He, he died for sinners. Talk about, talk about leadership blessing a people. You see that in David. You see that in Jesus. Him living perfectly, dying for us, has brought us eternal blessing. And when he died, unlike 1 Samuel 31, God raised him. Well done, son. You rule over everyone. They will all worship you for what you've done, carrying out my plan, loving them to the end. So, as we come to the end of this passage here, Isaiah 53, let me just read a few more verses. They made his grave with the wicked and with rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, turning point, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. That's the resurrection. Jesus made an offering for guilt. So how, when he died, will he then see something later on? because he's alive now. Made an offering for guilt, now he sees the people that are his children. Every time you are saved or someone you know is saved, Jesus is seeing his offspring coming after him. They've been given life and he sees that. He won that for them. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So I, verse 11 now. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him, divide him as portion with the many, 
and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. So Jesus died, but somehow he's still getting an inheritance. Yes, he's alive. And we are receiving that inheritance with him. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So he gave his body as a sacrifice, yet still even today he makes intercessions for sinners. Jesus is alive. God has given him the throne. So, 1 Samuel, we come to the end to study in leadership. We see Paul's, Saul's bad leadership, we see David's good leadership, and we're left wanting more, aren't we? Our hearts cry out for a leader. We cry out for a spouse who will guide us, a parent who will lead us well, a president who will lead us well, a boss who will lead us well. We want the perfect leader. Our hearts cry out for the perfect example. Our hearts cry out for a spiritual leader who himself perfectly worships and leads us in worship. Our hearts are crying out for a savior from our sinful lives and from this corrupt world. Our hearts cry out for the opposite of a tragic ending. We don't want to end like 1 Samuel 31. Our hearts cry out for more. Jesus Christ is the one that our hearts long for, and he's the only one that can meet all of our needs. So, in a book about leadership and kings and following after God, let me ask you this question. Have you embraced Jesus as your perfect king? Do you let him lead you? Have you gone to him for forgiveness, for salvation? Do you find your rest in him? Are you still looking, still looking, still looking? Are you trying to be your own king? Are you hoping the next election solves all your problems? Are you hoping the next job solves all your problems? Are you hoping that your spouse will solve all your problems? Who are you hoping, hoping in? Jesus is the perfect king who died and rose again and shepherds his people. Trust in Jesus Christ. I'll end with these words. Jesus came to earth. One of his close friends died. Jesus went and wept and mourned. And he said this to the sister of his friend, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let's pray together. Father, this passage leads us to long for something beyond the grave, something hopeful, not a tragic ending, but something bright. We praise you for Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for sending your son. Lord Jesus, thank you for obeying perfectly. You are who Saul was not. You are who David was not. You are perfect. David pointed to you. You are perfect. Every friend that criticized you, you respond the right way to, Lord. Every person that persecuted you, you responded the right way. Any person who needed love and care, who'd been tossed aside, you went and ministered to. You are unlike us. You are unlike anybody else. You are the perfect Lamb of God. And then, Lord, you suffered in our place. So I pray that today would be a day where we see you as the high and exalted one. We bow the knee to you in everything that we do. We find our rest and our comfort in your salvation. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.